Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. I'm J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io and join today. Today, my guest is Peter Kay. Peter is an experienced marketing, brand building, and growth leader with deep operating experience in the food and beverage industry. He is currently the founder and principal at PK Growth Partners, which works with C-level leaders, primarily of entrepreneurial mission-driven firms to develop and implement profitable growth strategies. His firm is focused on providing interim and fractional C-suite growth leadership, enabling early stage companies to benefit from deep experience quickly and affordably without a full-time hire. Peter began his career with classic consumer packaged good companies like Nestle and Danone in product management roles. He then worked in marketing and brand management roles with organizations like the Coca-Cola Company and Diageo. In recent years, he's held C-suite roles such as Chief Marketing Officer and Chief Revenue Officer with mission-driven businesses, including Honest Tea, the nonprofit Share Our Strength that runs the No Kid Hungry campaign, and a venture-backed, better-for-you food ingredient startup called New Tech Natural Ingredients. Most recently, with Hungry Harvest, a farm-to-doorstep produce delivery company. Peter serves on several advisory boards of early-stage companies. He earned his MBA from Harvard Business School and his bachelor's degree from the University of Virginia. He and his family live in the Washington, D.C. area. Peter, welcome. Good to have you on the show. I appreciate you doing this. Thank you, JR. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So let's start with what you're up to today. Fill us in. Yeah. So I run a firm called PK Growth Partners, led by me. and I lead all the engagements. What we do is provide growth strategy development and implementation, really acting as what I consider a player coach, using that sports metaphor for yeah. clients. Yes, I do strategy projects. Love really rolling up my sleeves and also doing the implementation or leading the implementation. The key offering for what firm does is really, I think, differentiated in that providing interim and fractional senior operating leadership, particularly for entrepreneurial businesses in areas that I'm passionate about, mission businesses, which we'll talk more about, where I have discovered they need experience. They need experienced operators on their team, but yeah. aren't necessarily ready to bring someone on full time. So to plug and play with a leader who can help them really tackle the ongoing challenges that they face in an entrepreneurial business. So that's the focus of the firm. I just launched it late last year, and I'm having a lot of fun with it. So what types of clients are you typically working with? I handle a range of clients. My strength and, and kind of sweet spot is with food and beverage companies, given my background, 
working in places like Nestle and Coca-Cola and Diageo and Honest Tea, though I've worked in sporting goods. I'm working actually with another consulting firm now, helping them expand their practice into the food industry. But really, my bread and butter and a lot of my strength is in my network is in the food industry. Yeah. I've heard certainly of fractional CFOs and fractional heads of HR. Are you finding what you're doing is common or is what you're doing relatively unique? It's a good question. They're fractional chief marketing officer, chief growth officer, whatever you want to call it, is less common for sure currently than fractional CFOs. And I've actually talked with many to figure out how we can partner and collaborate and share clients. There are some groups that do do it, boutique firms. They tend to be larger company focused. So my focus on more entrepreneurial businesses kind of stands out. And, you know, it all depends on the stage of development. I think as a company grows in the early stages, it works really well. It works well for their PL. Right. It works well from a headcount management standpoint and as they're attracting investors. As they grow and scale, there will be a point I expect when they'll say, okay, we don't need fractional anymore. We're going to shift to full time. It's outsourced before insourcing. Yeah. Is the idea. Do you run into situations where they say, hey, do you want to come in full time, but you're sort of committed to this multi model Um, that you've gotten yourself into? I have faced that. It's a great question. To be clear, I'm not doing it for kind of full-time opportunities to emerge. However, as we might talk about in in some other parts of this conversation, being opportunistic and looking for unexpected or being open-minded to unexpected opportunities has been a key part of my career where things have come up that I never would have imagined. And so if there's a great fit, if I like the business, we get along great, I see the potential, of course, I'd entertain it. But that's not why I'm doing it. I'm really trying to build a practice that where I have a portfolio of three or four clients that each need me on average a quarter of my time, something like that. So you were chief revenue officer, chief marketing officer in a few different places before this. Chief yeah. marketing officer is a role that probably most people would understand, but chief revenue officer is less common. How did it manifest itself in terms of your responsibilities when you were in that chief revenue officer role? It's a great question. And, you know, titles have kind of morphed in this space over the last several years. In addition to chief marketing officer, having a chief revenue officer, some organizations have a chief growth officer or chief transformation officer. In my experience, there's often overlap, if not redundancy. It just depends on the organization. For me, most every marketing role I've held over the years has had revenue as one of the key accountabilities, as one of the measures of success and the reason why we were marketing whatever we were marketing. And so the transition for me to be in a role titled chief revenue officer was not a big deal in the sense of accountabilities where it was different or has been different is when there's a strong B2B sales component, which is, which is often what has gone along with that title. That's a little bit different in terms of at one point I had to dig in and learn, you know, CRM systems and building pipelines. It wasn't rocket science to figure out, but it was new. It was new and different, right? And then leading teams, leading sales professionals to do that work, right? My role in a CRO position was to really help on the strategy, on the segmentation, 
on the messaging, on the tools and communications, right? And yes, joining sales calls for key prospects. You've hit on this a little bit, but how did you measure yeah. success besides revenue? What were some of the other things that, yeah. you know, that you were held accountable for? I would say generally speaking, if I look across most C-suite roles I've been in for, for years now, revenue, profit, and brand equity. That's particularly when I've had marketing responsibilities, right? Within even if it was called CRO and I had marketing within my responsibility, measuring brand health in some way, right? Whether it's awareness, whether it's measuring key brand attributes, repeat purchase rates for direct to consumer businesses, measures like average order value. Those were some of the metrics we used to measure our brand health in addition to top line revenue and profitability. So you were at Hungry Harvest for a while, farm to doorstep produce delivery. This seems like something a lot of people get really excited about sort of emotionally. How is it actually running it as a business? Yeah, it's it's a great question. It is for many people a real draw because Mm -hmm. the idea of tackling food waste. And for me personally, I had joined Hungry Harvest on the heels of working at Share Our Strength where we fought childhood hunger. We can talk more about that if we want. For Hungry Harvest, it was almost the other side of it, really the other side of the coin, because there's so much food waste. And Hungry Harvest, like a handful of companies, really trying to address that by rescuing produce that would otherwise go to waste. Too big, too small imperfections, such that mainstream retailers like Whole Foods and Kroger won't accept them, right? But it still tastes great just as nutritious, right? And so we rescue them and market them directly to consumers through our e-commerce platform and deliver it to your door. So there's the sustainability aspect that many are drawn to. Like you said, there's the value aspect that many are Mm -hmm. drawn to because we're able to pass along some significant savings versus what you'd normally pay. And then there's the convenience, right? Getting it to your doorstep. So when COVID hit, that was great for business as all of us were at home and not wanting to go into stores and ordering just about everything we could online, right? Right. Including food, right? Right. Business went up significantly. The challenge that came about was all those consumers that came to businesses like Hungry Harvest and others for the convenience as mainstream retailers upped their game with digital, right? Ordering capabilities, either delivery to your door with Instacart or their own delivery or click and collect at the store, right? The competition went up significantly from big, big players. So that's made the business a challenge. With that, my role as chief revenue officer, I joined actually as the business was starting to really face those headwinds. I wasn't there during the COVID positive spike. I was there during kind of the headwind period where we were trying to pivot and adapt. And we did some research to really try and understand what do consumers want that we're not offering, right? How do we be more competitive? Some fundamental consumer research. We actually use the jobs to be done framework from our former professor, Clayton Christensen. We use that framework in the research output. And that helped us broaden our product mix that we offered, different produce offerings, different everyday offerings, things that maybe aren't produce, but that you'd have to go to the grocery store to get, or making foods, prepared foods out of the same produce. So pickled products, kombucha, pastas, all sorts of things that we made under our name, right? Again, to make our consumers' lives easier so they don't have to make yet another shopping trip. And we expanded into wholesale, something that we were kind of scratching the surface on, but really leaned into how can we supply instead of 
a 15 or $25 box of produce to your door. Let's sell a truckload to someplace like Sweetgreen, get a lot more scale. And that was, I'm not saying we were working with Sweetgreen, but those were the kinds of businesses we wanted to be working with. How did so all that play out? It's, yeah. it's a challenge and it still yeah. is a challenge. There's a few players, Misfits Foods, bought Imperfect Foods from the West Coast. And I'm not aware of kind of how they're doing. You know, there's challenges in the model. If you're delivering to people's doorsteps, there's a cost to that and manpower to that. If you're shipping, which competition largely does, there's a cost to that. There's also an environmental impact to that, that many of the customers that come to the business for sustainability reasons, you know, get turned off by. It is a real challenge. You mentioned earlier before that you were working at Share Our Strength, Childhood Hunger. What was it like working in a nonprofit relative to working in a for-profit business? When I joined or when I first started having conversations with them and I, I had never worked at a nonprofit up to that point. Yeah. And so I had certain perceptions, right? And I assumed it was going to be more laid back than for-profit. There would be jeans and Birkenstocks, but it was far from that. It was very professionalized. It was a very well-run operation. And maybe not surprising because the organization had been around for about 30 years. Share yeah. Spring. The campaign, the No Kid Hungry campaign was newer. It was about a 10-year-old campaign. Mm. But it was, for me, very similar to things I had been doing for a while, which is mission-driven businesses. That passion and commitment for the mission, right? And kind of doing whatever it takes on whatever project or initiative or challenge that comes up. Personally, I felt that to be a, a very different kind of cultural vibe than in for-profit organizations where the mission is not as an integral to the day-to-day. And so for me, that was very similar. The, really, the key difference, if I had to share that, was, would be when you think about it, when you're in a for-profit company, investment decisions, risks that you take, it's with either profits of the business or if you're early stage investment dollars, right? In the business, it's part of kind of what you do is you're innovating, you're trying, testing and trying new things. In a nonprofit, you're playing with donor money. So it's different. Yeah, It's very different. Not to say we didn't take risks and try new things, but it was not as risk prone, willing to take risks as in a for-profit, I found. Yeah. And you're probably also, you feel a greater sense of accountability to watch every penny because it is donor money. And because of what you're trying to do with the money that you're raising. In our case, we're trying to feed hungry kids. I viewed my job quite simply as chief revenue marketing officer. Yes, build our brand, but bring in as much money as possible. So my program colleagues could put it to good use to feed hungry kids. Right. So, right. Testing something. And if it doesn't work, you would feel some different pangs of guilt, like, shoot, we could have used that money differently. You had sort of a professionalized fundraising approach, right? I mean, a lot of times it's the CEO of or the head of a nonprofit that's, by definition, the chief fundraiser. I, I remember, and I've yeah. talked about this on earlier episodes of the show, that doing work with United Way back when I was working at McKinsey and the woman, Marilyn Hurd, who was running United Way, I mean, she was a tireless fundraiser. Morning noon and night. She was at some breakfast, some lunch, and some dinner, pounding the pavement, looking for money for United Way. 
And like, gosh, one of the impressions I certainly got from that experience of working with them is, man, that is an exhausting job. Seven days a week, just brutal. Well, it is. And for me, when the mission is so compelling and the need Mm. is so strong, right, that while we celebrated wins and we had a lot of good wins from a fundraising standpoint, it's still never enough until you've solved the problem, right? In our case, we felt like it was a solvable problem ending childhood hunger in America. And we made great progress. But still, there was very little time to take a breath and say, we did it. Because you're on to the next one, the next partnership deal, the next event. We did a lot of corporate partnership work. Yeah. uh, But we also did plenty of dinners and events like many uh, nonprofits do, and plenty of digital fundraising. So we were pulling on kind of every avenue we could to, to raise as much as possible. Would you work for another nonprofit? For sure. Yeah. Particularly if it's an organization I doing work in a space that I could get excited about the right word, but motivated by issues that I care about. As a consultant, I've worked for a few organizations, one in the environmental space, um, kind of dealing with plastic waste and addressing that. Another one in the hunger and poverty space, but more mm-hmm. around helping farmers, smallholder farmers get better at what they do. Heifer International, you might know. So I'm very, I'm very open to, uh, to more work in that space because it's rewarding. It's, yeah. It's very rewarding. You've always struck me in the time I've known you over the last maybe 10, 15 years in Pitchcore's mission has played a key role in what you've chosen to do professionally, yeah. whether you're working for a for-profit or a nonprofit institution. And I, I have to imagine that plays in pretty heavily in how you think about even what you're doing today. Yeah, I got to a point after some of the early career experiences working for some great companies that I learned a lot at places like Coca-Cola, Nestle and Diageo, where I just kind of wanted something more. I could sell or market. At that point, I had done candy and yogurt and soda and vodka and all product categories. All of life's necessities. Right off essential food groups. And I said, I can keep doing that, or I can try and work on some businesses that I felt like were making a difference, bigger picture in either health and wellness or sustainability, something more than just the financial transaction of selling something. I really do both. And so for me, I was kind of dabbling and consulting in that space on the side for fun and uh, advising a few companies. And then kind of fortuitously, I got introduced to Seth Goldman, who co-founded Honest Tea, and he convinced me to join the team. And that was a dozen years ago or so. It was my first time inside a mission-driven business in an operating role, and I loved it. Well, that was great learning for me about myself, about the kind of culture I wanted to be a a part of, very entrepreneurial, very willing to try new things. We created tons of new products that fortunately most worked, not all, but most did. But the mission really was compelling. It wasn't something that we had painted on the wall or we had to reference occasionally. We didn't have to name conference rooms around values. We lived it. And I say it that way, not to criticize all the companies that do those sorts of things to help communicate internally because that's important, but it was really infectious to have it influence and help our decisions like day in, day out. It was great. So I've stayed on that path since from food ingredient startup I was with, where they're trying to tackle the sodium overconsumption problem, which is pervasive around the world. 
and it's in so much of our food and come up with an ingredient alternative that the food system could use at scale. Mm. Uh, it was a potassium chloride product instead of sodium chloride. From that to share our strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign, to me, while it was nonprofit, it was still food and it was still mission. And most of our corporate partners, which was about two thirds of our revenue, was corporations. So that was familiar and comfortable, but it was, boy, it was new and different for me being in charge of high end dinners to raise five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars. I had never done that before. Right. So that was a little bit scary, but also a lot of fun to try and learn. And, and fortunately, I had a great team and professionals who knew how to do it. But for me, to your question, kind of mission has been that thread since Hungry Harvest that we talked about, very mm. mission-driven. And my, my clients today that I have been working with and that I'm having conversations with in terms of potential additional roles, I would say they all have a strong mission component to it. And that's by design as I do my business development in terms of who interests me and who I'm getting introduced to. How did you get into the food and beverage space in the beginning? I have to give a lot of credit to my dad. He, his career, very interesting. Prior to starting his own business, he worked at Procter & Gamble a while. He worked at Gillette in Boston. That's when I was born, when my family was living in Boston. And then he took an advertising job in Manhattan, and that brought my family uh, close to Manhattan in Connecticut. He had a couple of different roles, uh, different organizations, but, but started his own new product consultancy. And he was working a lot in the consumer product space, not exclusively, but, but a lot in that space and particularly food. And one summer, he hired me and I literally carried his bag to meetings that summer in college. And he was, this was the General Foods when General Foods, if you remember, existed, Kraft bought them, which then became Mondelez or part of Mondelez. And so well, there I am in meetings with, I don't know, remember what business is, it was, you know, Jell-O and Birdseye and, and yeah. brands like that. And I kind of got the bug. One, I got the bug for business. Two, I got a bug for marketing. And in organizations like that, marketing was often really a general management role in that you were developing growth strategies and implementation plans. And then you had to rally the organization, whether it was manufacturing or distribution, R&D, sales, to implement those plans. It all came out of the brand plans, right? And really that idea, sort of this holistic view versus a kind of single functional view, I really took to that. And that gave me the focus. I went to University of Virginia undergrad. That gave me the focus on marketing and particularly consumer products. And I started my career working at Nestle on the candy business. Yeah. First Nestle Crunch, and then we bought Butterfinger and Baby Ruth. Worked on Butterfinger, if you remember Simpson's Butterfinger campaign. That was me and my boss. Nobody lays uh, a finger on my Butterfinger. Yeah, we got it. Well Bart done. Simpson, I remember him doing that. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that, I mean, that was fun. I was right out of school. I was living on spreadsheets doing forecasting and trade spend analysis. And I got to sit in on some of those meetings. Yeah. <laughs> it was fun. You've worked for some really big names, right? Coke, Nestle, Diageo. Denon. Are these companies on the inside, is it sort of same type of work, different product, or are they really different in how they operate? At a high level, there's similarities from a kind of business planning standpoint. The 
annual business planning cycle. And those were similar, but the cultures were very different in these organizations, which, mm. which I think were driven by a handful of things. Certainly the size of the company, a Coca-Cola or Diageo, you know, they're huge global businesses selling around the world. You know, the culture of these businesses certainly is informed by where they are or who they're owned by. Danone, French, Diageo, British, Coke, American, and specifically Atlanta. So that the Southern heritage, it all played a part. None of it was good or bad. It's just different, right? And some are very interesting, like just in terms of, for example, Diageo, very, very consumer insights centric. I think a good way for businesses that were huge and needed insights to really drive growth. And that was a stronger team in the organization, more important team, for example, than I had seen in other organizations. You might just have a market research department. This was like an insights team and members were embedded with business units. It wasn't a separate function, right? So there were things like that 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 made it really different. You've done some advisory board work as well. How have you found that? How has that added to what you've sort of learned along the way in your career? Part of it is a bit of giving back, particularly because of the organizations that I've been advising. Most of them are first-time entrepreneurs, often, not always, but often very young, and they're learning a lot. And if I can be helpful to them, if they can make fewer mistakes, that's great. There are times as well where I'm learning from them. Actually, before I worked at Hungry Harvest, I started working for, which is a direct-to-consumer business. And I'd done some direct-to-consumer work, but not much. But I was advising a company that is a a startup they've since launched, but I started working them when they were pre-revenue, direct-to-consumer for the foreseeable future. So I was learning from them, rolling around in their spreadsheets and their analyses about how they're going to build the business, which is a bit different than a traditional retail business. So for me, it's both giving back and sometimes some opportunities to learn. And I enjoy it. It's a fun part of the mix. I consider it part of my portfolio. For entrepreneurs who might be listening, who are thinking about sort of when to form an advisory board, who to put on their advisory board, any advice that you would give them? In terms of when, I don't think it can be too soon in that as you're developing your plan and positioning it and making sure what you're going to market with is really solving a problem, right? There, there was a company that I advised um, for a while and it was before they launched. And I spent a lot of time with them, helping them think about how to position the company given the competition. So I think early is great, but the key is the right people. And it's not just friends, family, which I think a lot of people default to. That's not bad. The key is, do they have complementary skills and experience, added value, things you haven't done before? It certainly is helpful if they're well-connected, right? If they know a lot of other people, they can pull in as needed as the business grows. And the third thing I think is tremendously helpful is, because this happens, where you need someone to be more than just an advisor or a connector. There are times where you need them to actually roll up their sleeves a bit. It could be joining you in a meeting with one of their close connections. It could be actually digging in on something that they have real subject matter expertise on for a period of time to help. And that does depend a little bit on your stage of growth, I think. But I think if you could land someone 
with all three, that's kind of ideal, but at least get one, right? At least get one. Yeah. Yeah. How would you define leadership? How has your view of leadership formed over the years? I probably learned more about leadership from people I've worked for than anything. Not so much in a book, what we learned in in B-School. It's by doing. It's learning from others, but also my own practices, what I have felt works well uh, or not. And so to me, you know, know, core to leadership is, is setting a direction, right? Having a vision, having clear objectives, having a plan, and then rallying others behind that plan. I mean, that's kind of what it is. In the how, my personal leadership approach is informed, by the way, about how I like either to be led by others or those I've observed. And that is once you get that alignment, coach, guide, support, whatever's needed, because it varies. I've had half a dozen direct reports that all have very different needs. Some need a lot more help and guidance, others less so. And both are fine, right? But basically, as much as possible, I try to get out of the way (laughs) and engage to stay on top of what's going on, but more so to help elevate ideas, to help. Because in a lot of the organizations I've been in, you can have, even in small organizations, surprisingly, you can end up with silos, Mm -hmm. right? Where different teams don't know what the other is doing. So a lot of my role is connecting the dots, seeing a great idea coming out of one team, and then pulling in others from other teams to build upon it. So we're doing fewer, bigger initiatives that have greater impact instead of having 10 activities here and 10 activities here, let's integrate, right? And so that's where a lot of my leadership um, comes in and, and that I enjoy. I enjoy doing, but I am not a micromanager. I don't think anyone would ever say I am. And, and I've never enjoyed working for a micromanager. And so my leadership style reflects that very much. I'm very trusting and happy to have folks go take that hill and keep me in the loop. You need my help. I'm here. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I Obviously, I don't really like working for micromanagers either. One of the things that I'm discovering in the role I'm in right now is that there are some projects that we've got going on where you have to really sweat the details, right? And it's a bit like managing an important event, right? You, you think about every little thing that has to happen, things that can go wrong, making sure that you're on top of all that. And it does feel like you're micromanaging sometimes. And I find that uncomfortable. At the same time, like some of it in situations, I think you just have to, you have to sweat the details. You have to really be in the weeds with the team and they don't like it, but it's necessary in some sort of circumstances. Yeah. And I think you're spot on, JR. It's hard. I think even just recognizing that it's hard for us as leaders, right? It brings a self-awareness so that in the moment, hopefully we're not coming off as we don't trust you. And that's why we're digging in. I try for is I'm digging in because I care and I want to help. I'm not looking for to call you on areas where you're falling short. I mean, yes, you do that if you have to, but it is about trying to elevate the team and the output, particularly for mission, a lot of the mission-driven work, whether nonprofit, for-profit. It's We spend very little time, places like Honest Tea, criticizing when something yeah. goes wrong. We learn from it. We acknowledge 
what we could have done differently or better. Yeah. But we move on because we have to, right? Not every organization does that. Sometimes you have leaders with backgrounds that are more just more of a micromanager and looking for the flaws versus kind of elevating and helping solve problems before yeah. they are problems. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. It is. Yeah. It's a hard balance. When you hire people, what do you look for? What's most important to you? A couple things, particularly with what I've been doing for a while now, trying to ascertain a true passion for and commitment to the mission. Yeah. That's really important. You can get at that a number of different ways. For more junior roles, looking for a work ethic, a demonstrated work ethic, because they're at a stage where they're still learning and growing, right? For more senior leaders, the track record is fundamental. You know, yeah. a, a track record of results related to the role that you're filling, right? I mean, if you have both of those, if you have a track record and a commitment to the mission, then that's a strong contender for sure. Yeah, and it's especially important to you given just what you're doing, right? And the kinds of things that, as you said earlier, excite or motivate you. Yeah, and and a little, you know, with what I'm doing specifically now with my consulting firm, those that I pull in sort of part of my extended team are boutique agencies, other freelancers I know where I'm looking for subject matter expertise, right? I need an ex SEO expert. I need a packaging designer, something that I can do some of those things. Certainly can't do packaging design. I can do some SEO, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I'm not a specialist. I know how to ask enough of the right questions. So yeah. those are just examples. And But in that case, you're obviously also looking for chemistry because you're partnering to help a client. And so if it's someone I've worked with and built that rapport with, that helps a lot. If they come highly recommended from someone I know, that's valuable. And that's from a quote hiring standpoint. I want to come back to something you said earlier in the conversation, the very beginning yeah. about being open to opportunities. Talk a little bit about what that really has meant to you in terms of the way that you've approached the career choices that you've made over the years. I'm very curious and eager to kind of explore and learn and open-minded. And that has led me to probably entertain certain opportunities that I wouldn't otherwise. So while I've, yes, you want to progress in your career, you want to do better, taking a call from a former colleague or from a recruiter, being willing to do that. I've done that over the years and really... I've done some things that I never would have imagined. You know, going to a nonprofit, I wasn't looking for that. It found me, right? Honest tea. I wasn't like targeting honest tea, but it found me through an introduction, through an, a former colleague. So there's actually two parts to your question. One is, I think, an open-mindedness, a willingness to explore. And number two is, I've tried to build a strong network and stay in touch with people over my career, I'm still in touch with my first real boss out of college, you know, when oh, I worked your, at Nestle. Your right? candy bar boss? Yes, exactly. And just about everyone in between, the guy that hired me at Coke, still in touch with him, et cetera. And you never know. You never know who you're going to cross paths with again in your career. And you never know what opportunities they may uncover and bring to you. Definitely, my career has not been linear. It has mm -hmm. not been an orchestrated this, then that. Every move has been for a reason. And every move has brought, generally, has brought something new and different, whether it's 
going when I went to Diageo, I hadn't done any global work before, right? And all of a sudden, I was working on a business like Smirnoff, who sold in 120 countries, and yeah. I had only been US focused. Yeah, it was totally different. It was awesome. It was great travel, just intellectually an amazing challenge to think about how you build a business that's sold in that many countries, right? When you're on a central team, going to a nonprofit, like I said, that there were similarities. It was still food and mission, but to raise money from high net worth individuals, that was really different <laughs> in other aspects of the role. And so that's been a common thread, but I think it's been an open-mindedness to explore and listen and have a conversation and think it through. But to me, I think as I reflect, I value my network, value many of whom I consider friends, uh, folks I've worked with. And that's been valuable as you kind of go through the journey of the unexpected. And I haven't even mentioned, yes, I've lived through, as many folks in business have, restructurings and yep. acquisitions. And and that brings a whole other layer of kind of turmoil and chaos as you're navigating your career. And being trying to learn how to be resilient and look for the positives, look for the learning opportunities, even in the midst of those. Those are things that on the in the moment are hard to top of mind, but it's also reality. Yeah. Uh, and it'll likely happen again. When you look back, what do you wish somebody had told you when you were just starting out at Nestle, fresh out of college, that you learned much later in your career? I don't know if it's something that someone would have told me, but if I could have had exposure to entrepreneurial businesses early on, yeah, I might have made that shift sooner, if not right away. I love the pace. I love the challenge. You're, you're building something from nothing. I've learned I don't love lots of meetings and lots of big decks, though I can do that. Mm. <laughs> and so I wish I had more exposure to entrepreneurship and really gave that more consideration sooner. I'm, I'm thrilled I'm doing it now, but maybe it did come my way and it just didn't resonate at the time, but I don't recall it being as prominent, hey, here's a potential career path or something you can do. And you kind of get driven towards existing big companies you know, to get a job, right? But it is what it is. I'm glad I'm doing it now. I don't know if you took any of the entrepreneurship classes when we were in school. I took entrepreneurial finance. And if there was like this lesson that seemed to get sort of conveyed in that class, it's like, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you will work insane hours and you'll have to like throw all of your life savings into it because that's what a venture capitalist will expect. And that may have been true then. It's certainly not nearly as true now. And I think the entrepreneurial world is a lot more friendly to new entrants than it used to be. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I do think I took entrepreneurial finance in hindsight, maybe. Maybe I was turned off by some of those dimensions as well. But well, and it's also, yeah. I think in like your space, I mean, it was really hard 30 years ago as a startup food company or beverage company to crack the trade. And now, like they create their spaces that are oriented toward entrepreneurial brands, right? I mean, it's much yes, more right. part of retail distribution of food and beverage products. Yes. That was certainly not true back well, when yeah. we were in our 20s. That, that's right. And you have pretty well-established chains like Whole Foods and yeah. Sprouts and Fresh Market that are that are geared generally towards better-for-you brands, which is where most of the right. innovation is. So to your point, you're not trying to carve out 
space in a very mainstream store, although those have changed as well and have yeah. have a lot more opportunities. Like you said, the retail environment is different. Well, it was fun doing this. I did a terrible job getting through my questions today. Much more we could have covered, but sort of took a meandering path through the list of questions and covered a lot of different things. And well, it was fun it. to catch up. I obviously okay. in each of these conversations with former classmates, I learned more about what they've been doing over the years than I knew before. And I value that. So thank you. Thank you, JR. Thank you for having me. And I hope it's helpful to your viewers. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. And have a good right. rest of your day. All right, you too. It was fun catching up with Peter. Appreciate him joining me today to discuss his career journey, what he's learned along the way, the importance of mission and everything that he's doing at the moment. You can learn more about him and his firm, PK Growth Partners, by going to pkgrowthpartners.com. And if you're ready to take control of your career, you can visit pathwise.io. If you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a member. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter. Follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.